There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. This blessing and warning from the poet Dina Metzger captures the conundrum, the paradox, the challenge all of us who care about climate justice or any justice must face. How do we confront a corrupt system without letting it corrupt our own souls? How do we oppose violence without becoming violent ourselves, spiritually, if not physically? To paraphrase Jimi Hendrix, how do we use the power of love to overcome the love of power? To paraphrase Emma Goldman, how do we make a revolution while dancing? As an activist, as a musician, as a spiritual being, I've wrestled with these questions for decades. I still don't know the answers. But I've had some wonderful teachers, Nelson Mandela, Pete Seeger, Thich Nhat Hanh, Issei Barnwell, and now the Westboro Eight, Emily Edgerly, Devin Powell, Lisa Purdy, Shea Reister, Ben Thompson, Ben Trollio, Ali Welton, and Dorian Williams realize that the way of life of their parents' generation is coming to an end. They understand with fierce clarity that we have left them a world that will degrade critically and perhaps catastrophically in the course of their lifetimes. Are they angry about it? Oh yeah, they're angry. Are they grief-stricken? Yes, and heartbroken. But they have taken their anger and their grief and their heartbreak and transmuted them in the fire of love into courage. A year ago last month to protest the Keystone XL pipeline, they sat down in the lobby of the Trans-Canada corporate offices in Westboro, Massachusetts, and refused to leave. They superglued their hands and chained their wrists and ankles together. They were arrested and charged with being a disorderly person, disturbing the peace, and trespassing. But what is more disorderly or disturbing? And what is a greater trespass than wrecking the planet? The Keystone XL pipeline, which would deliver dirty tar sands oil from Canada to refineries in Texas for global export, has been called game over for the climate by former NASA scientist James Hansen. A Trans-Canada spokesman dismissed the Westboro 8 civil disobedience as a publicity stunt. Of course, that's what they called Rosa Parks' refusal to surrender her bus seat to a white man. We stand together, these young activists said, as representatives of a desperate generation who have been forced into this position by the reckless and immoral behavior of fossil fuel corporations such as TransCanada. Our political leaders have failed countless times 
to stand up to the tyranny of fossil fuel giants and take the necessary steps to solve the climate crisis. Their failures have disrupted and destroyed millions of lives. The Keystone XL pipeline represents an intolerable threat to our future. Today, they said, we add our peaceful civil disobedience to an accelerating tidal wave of actions from the farmlands of rural Texas to the steps of the White House as people across the nation rise up together. This morning, we honor the Westboro Eight for their determination to create a more just and sustainable future, for their hope and creativity and joy in doing what has to be done if we are to safeguard the future of our species and redefine our relationships with one another and the rest of creation. But we must do more than honor the Westboro Eight. We must join them in their resistance, in their faithfulness, in their courageous love. I now invite Standing Committee Chair Susan Shepard and Social Justice Chair Marcia Hams to present the Westboro Eight with our Courageous Love Award. And will the Westboro Eight please come forward? Three of our honorees will now address us from their hearts, so please go up to the pulpit. Thank you. I feel very tall <laughs> up here. <laughs> um, I'm a very short person, so this is exciting for me. Um, I grew up UU, so this kind of feels like coming home. Um, but thank you all, of course, for presenting us with this award. It's a great an incredible honor and means a lot to us. Um, and of course, it comes at a very good time now that the Keystone XL pipeline is back on the national radar. And I was very excited to hear that there will be an opportunity to leave public comments about the final environmental impact statement of the pipeline after the service. Um, and I really hope that everyone takes the time to do that. Um, I was asked to come up here and talk about my story, about why, why I do this work and why I did this this thing, um, but when I think about it, about why I do this and why I, why I locked myself down in that office and why I continue to organize and work for climate justice and to fight climate change, it's not, it's not really about me. I mean, it is, it is about me in the sense that I am a young person and my future and the future of my entire generation is already being shaped by this threat of climate change. It's already happening to the world around us and it is terrifying at a visceral level. And thinking about that shapes the way that I live my life every day. I don't know if I will ever feel comfortable having children in a world that is 
unstable and, and ravaged by famine and drought and resource shortages and and I'm terrified and I think about that every day but it's also not really about me in the sense that I come from a place of great privilege and ability to act and I act because somebody must do something many people must do something in the face of the crisis of climate change and I choose to do this work because I can and because somebody must I, I do this work because, for example, last January, after I got arrested in Westboro, I called my parents and they said, well, we would prefer that you never get arrested again, but we really, we really respect you for standing up for something that you believe in. That was their reaction. And I am incredibly lucky and incredibly privileged that my family continues to support me even though I did something very crazy and stupid, um, objectively speaking. And climate change, the worst thing about climate change, which you already know, of course, is that the people who are already and will continue to be most affected by it are often people who, who don't have a lot of power and don't have a lot of privilege to act. And the people who are causing it do have a lot of power and do have a lot of privilege and are going to be pretty fine. And I'm one of those people, like, the whole world is going, to, is going to be facing a lot of problems, but compared to a lot of other people who are already alive or have yet to be born, I'm going to be pretty fine. Um, for example, I, this past summer, had the incredible opportunity to travel to Peru to do research about how small farming communities are adapting to climate change um, and what issues they're facing. And I saw very small towns, very small, poor communities who are running out of water already because the glaciers are melting. And those people did nothing to cause that to happen. I've done more to cause that to happen than they have, and they're suffering from it. And there's only so much that they can do. But there's, there's a lot that I can do as a person of such privilege. And I feel like if I don't, act, and I would never be able to forgive myself. Um, and I would like to echo Reverend Small's call that everyone who recognizes that they have the privilege and the ability to act in some way in the face of this crisis to do so, because we must act, and those who can should more than, more than anyone else. So that's all I have to I'm going to sit down now. <laughs> oh, I know what Devin means. <laughs> this, um, I feel like I, it's funny standing up here to receive an award because I feel like really I have so much thanks for all of you. Um, I can't tell you how heartening it is to be in this space and how beautiful it is to be in this space um, because places like the one that you all have put so much of your heart and soul into these institutions of faith churches, 
are some of the few community institutions we have left, some of the few community spaces that we have to take this time together. So thank you so much for allowing me to take that time with all of you. Because I really feel that the loss and the erosion of our communities is at the heart of this crisis as much as everything else. That the erosion of our local community mirrors the erosion of our global community, the erosion of our lands as it strains to fill our resource demands, the erosions of the connections between us that allow us to economically and politically suppress people we've never seen and whose names we don't know, and the erosion of our moral core. As a society, we sprint off the edge of the climate cliff. So I thank you for inviting me into this space. I thank you for cultivating this community because it is these kinds of communities that we will need as the crisis worsens and times get harder. It is those who sit with you and those who sit with you in places very far away from here that we will need to take care of because as we've seen, our government will not take care of us. It is ourselves that we must rely on. And I can't thank you enough for all of the care that you have expressed and shown for the group of us, for allowing us the space when we were able to raise enough funds to pay our restitution, to all of the support and voices that you all have lent in this fight and in this crisis. Because we are going to need that in the future, but we also need it right now. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for this award um, and that recognition. Um, I think it's really, I think it's really fitting that you call it a Courageous Love Award um, because these days I feel it's taking a lot of courage to love. It takes a lot of courage to love life when it feels so precarious in the face of the crisis that we will experience and the social crises that have led to this moment. But it is that courage that drives me that courage to love that I fight for and the right to life, the right to bring life into this world, to know that if I were to have children, that I could provide clean water, food, shelter, security to them. And that is not a right that I have right now. And that is also a right that so many people around the world don't have. So I take strength from the communities of color and low-income communities here and around the world who will be hit first and hardest by climate change but have been the most resilient in their love. So I take courage in that to keep fighting and to be with you all here today. So I hope you join me in that courage to love each other because as resources become scarce, it's going to be really easy to fight over them when really we must fight together. So thank you for building this community and continuing to cultivate it because we will need a revolution to rebuild and revitalize our local communities and heal our global community. And it gives me a lot of hope to be in this space. So thank you and I love you.
So I'm here today to talk a little bit about family. And there's lots of different kinds of families in this world, so I'm not just referring to the genetic one that's sitting over in the pew over there. So it took a lot of courageous love for me to sit down in the car ride with my dad on the way home from college. A four-hour car ride where I had to figure out how I was going to tell him that I was going to get an arrest record. I, I didn't know what I was going to say at the time when I was sitting in the car, the Honda CRV. I just sat there, thoughts spinning around my head. What is he thinking? I'm all of a sudden 21 years old, and I'm about to tell my dad that I'm going to go get arrested, and I have no idea what he thinks whether he's going to be angry, upset, frustrated, I have no idea what, what emotion is going to come from him. And those thoughts kind of spin around my head. And as someone who's prone to, to anxiety, it was, it was all I could do to just sit there and like look straight out the window and, and say, okay, I'm going to do it in the next 15 minutes. Uh, maybe I'll do it in the next half hour. Uh, okay, I'm going to do it now. And... Those kind of hard conversations are the kind of hard conversations that families need to have when we're facing this kind of crisis. And, and I'm really grateful to have this First Parish family, my genetic family, and my Westboro 8 family. So I want to give a big thanks to all of those groups. And I think we all really need to think critically about the kind of hard conversations we need to have because the climate crisis demands that of us. But thankfully, with these hard conversations, we will gain trust, love, and empathy for each other. And those are things that the fossil fuel industry cannot take from us. Even if the fossil fuel industry can have a business plan that destroys our future, they cannot take from us the empathy, love, and passion that we feel. And we must carry this thought and this belief with us through the uncertainty that we may not win, through the uncertainty that we do not know what the future looks like. We must carry these emotions. And I challenge you to think within your family, within your life, and within yourself about the privilege that you carry and how you may need to have hard conversations in the future to take this kind of action or whatever action is appropriate for yourself. And so I thank you for welcoming me. I thank you for giving us a space for raising these funds, and I look forward to building this family with you.